0: All right. all right well let's uh let's open up in prayer our gracious God heavenly father lord we uh, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to gather together in your name to fellowship with one another to enjoy each other's company uh, to study your word and uh, just to talk about this important conversation uh, tonight lord this uh, topic that we will be discussing uh, the doctrine of man in particular talking about total depravity uh, Father, we just, uh, we do want to remember to pray for Margot. Lord, we pray, uh, just help her to feel better. Lord, pray for healing in her body. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we do pray for rain as it is so greatly needed. And um, Lord, again, we pray that you would uh, bless our conversation, bless our time tonight. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
1: I heard
0: something went off. I need All right, so. Um, so just like all the other ones, I mean, I don't, I don't have a lesson per se. Um, I designed. My thinking was that this would be a conversation, but it, it tends to be.
1: Oh, uh, we want it on. Okay, it's fine. I'm trying to fan off. The fan is like causing lights to flicker and it's hurting some
0: people. Oh, I see. I see.
1: It's okay. Excuse me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, well, I don't, I don't care. What are your all's preferences? We can have the lights and the fan on. Is that bothering you, Eric? I, I can't see with lights on or off. Uh, or off. I think
1: I'm sweating. All right. I go like this <laughs> as I'm going
0: down the road. All right, so um, so where I was getting at is, is uh, you know if you have any questions, I mean feel free to ask. Um, but uh, really, just wanted this to be more of a, a conversation where you can you know back and forth. Uh, if you want to interrupt and ask me something, you can. Um, like I said, I don't plan to cover everything that can be talked about, but I, I want to cover the important things, at least as I see them. Um, I said last week or the week before that that I think, you know, Luther, Luther once said that um, um, justification by by faith alone is the, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Um, and, and I do believe he's right in that. Um, but I also think that there are, there are two pillars um, upon which the entire church stands as well. And it's in you know, and it, and it's you know when we interpret scripture, and I think I used the illustration that there's two lenses through which we interpret scripture, and one is how we understand God, and the other is how we understand man. Um, and if we have one or both of those wrong, everything else we understand about God is is going to be skewed. Um, how we understand God, how we understand man. Um, impacts everything. It impacts our view of justification. It impacts our understanding of the gospel. What is the gospel? It impacts our understanding of the church. So I do think this is really important. And so in these discussions that um, that I wanted to have as we start our church, and that's part of what lies behind this as well, is I think these are kind of foundational doctrines that as we start a church, it's important that we understand these. It's important that you understand what I believe on these things, and uh, so the first two. Uh, so I've picked these topics uh, on purpose, um, looking at New Covenant theology, looking at Reformed theology, and now today the doctrine of man. So when we talk about the man, the doctrine of man, um, when, we, when we try to understand mankind, um, I think you have to start with um, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and uh, beginning in verse 26 scripture says then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And, uh, and then you see what's interesting is that there it talks about it initially, but then you get into chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we're given even more detail about how God formed the man, how God forms the woman. So the first thing to know, I think what's important, the first thing to understand when we talk about anthropology, is that man, and, and I'm using that in the general sense, right? Man and woman, mankind. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. The, the, the creation narrative makes that clear simply by the fact that everything else that God creates, even the living creatures, it simply, God, it simply says that God spoke and said, let there be. Right? You look at verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird. Verse 22, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and the same is true of all the livestock as well, in verse twenty-four, God simply speaks them into existence. But when it talks about man and woman, the whole story just slows down. And first of all, we're given we're given a, a glimpse into God contemplating here in verse twenty-four. God is speaking to Himself; He's thinking out loud uh, in in verse uh, twenty-six. Then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over... So the fact that the narrative slows down and gives us much more detail and we're we're told that God takes His time, unlike all the other living creatures where God simply says, let there be birds and there they are, let there be fish and there they are, we're told that God takes the time to form the man. He forms the man out of the dust of the earth, right? Verse 5, uh, when there was, of uh, chapter 2, no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the midst was going up. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He forms the man. He shapes him first. And then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life so god takes time same thing with the woman right god doesn't just say let there be a woman but rather he puts adam to sleep he takes a rib and from that rib he forms he takes the time to shape to sculpt almost like a potter with clay he sculpt sculpts the woman and takes his time with her and um all of that is designed to communicate to us that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Particularly the fact that everything else comes first. The universe, uh, you know, the, the sun, uh, the moon, the stars, the vegetation, the animals. The idea, the picture that we're given in the creation narrative is that God is, God is laying the stage as it were. He's setting the stage for man man and woman, right? Because they are made in the image of God. Even the language that is used there, that's not said of any other creature. There is no other creature that is said to be made in the image and the likeness of God. Um, even uh, angels are, are never said to be made in the image or in the likeness of God. Uh, but human beings are. And... With no other cre- creation, with no other part of creation, are we told that God breathes into them the breath of life? Right. Um, what's that? It's
1: more intimate.
0: Yes, it's it's intimate, and there there is a there is a touch of divinity, so to speak. There is a divine spark. He um,
1: into a soul,
0: there? He gives us a spirit, yes, and man becomes. A living soul, right? Man becomes a living soul. He becomes a living being. And that is what separates us from the other living things, right? There are other living creatures, other mammals on the planet, but only with humans are we told that God breathes into us the breath of life, gives us a spirit. We have a spirit that when we die, it departs to go be with Christ, with God. Or if you're an unbeliever, then you end up going to hell where you're kept until the day of judgment, and then there's the lake of fire, Revelation chapter, uh, chapter twenty. Um, but that is very different from all of the other from all of the other living creatures that God creates. And we're told God says, "Let us make, let us make man in our image and after our likeness." And that's that's really important for understanding uh, mankind. Um, the word "image," the Hebrew word, is the word uh, "Salem." And the word likeness is the word demuth in the Hebrew. And it's interesting to note that at least with the word image, we see that word. um, Well, first of all, these two words are repeated in Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Same word. Male and female, he created them, right? So, again, we're reminded they're both made in the likeness of God. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Exact same words. So God says, let us make man in our likeness and in our image. And yet we're told that when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his own image. So that right there, when we ask the question, what does it mean that man is made in the likeness and in the image of God? Well, we have to get our first clue from Genesis chapter 5, that Adam bore children that were made in his likeness and in his image. Now, does that mean that they were exact replicas of Adam? No. We understand that, right? But So we understand from that we've had our own children, right? We know that his children in some sense resembled him and took after him, but we also know that in some sense they were different and they were unique, right? So just on that surface level, when God creates man... It means that in some sense, we are like God, and we resemble Him, but yet in some sense, we are different, and we are unique, right? Um, we also see that same wording, and this is what I was going to point out, uh, throughout, the, throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, but particularly just one quick, easy reference that I always remember is in Numbers 35, Numbers 35, as they are, you know, um, preparing to enter the promised land. Moses reminds them that they are to drive out all of the inhabitants of the promised land. And uh, so in Numbers 33, uh, verse 51, God says to him, or no, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses. Yes, yeah, so God tells Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. The word image is the exact same word that we find in Genesis chapter 1, and it's the same word we find in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, it is the word Salem, right? So what we understand by that, right, destroy their images, the they would make statues. They would take these piece of wood or whatever and they would form either a cow that they might worship or a person or whatever the case may be. But it resembled something in creation. So what that tells us is that even though God is spirit, even though God is spirit, in some sense, our entire being, not just our spirit, but even our bodies in some ways are representative of our creator and, and and here's what I mean by that you might be wondering well how is that if God doesn't have a body what do you mean does God have hands does God have? no God doesn't have hands doesn't have feet right that's not what I mean by that but in the pagan world in the Old Testament for example when they would create a God oftentimes they would you know when they would make an idol not create a God when they would make an idol to be their God it was created in such a way that it It represented something about that God, something about his power. So, so cows and bulls were very popular forms of um, idolatry in in the Old Testament, right? Um, What do the Israelites do when Moses goes up on the mountain? They make a golden calf, right? Because bulls were a source of life in the ancient world, right? You could get beef from it, you get milk from the cows... You, can, you get skin from them that you can use for clothing and material. Uh, they were powerful, right? The bulls with their horns were a powerful animal. They could pull plows and you could use them for farming so that you could grow food. So they were, they were a source of life. And so the thing that they formed would represent the God that lie behind it, so to speak. Does that make sense? It represented the God behind this object a golden cow or a golden bull or a golden calf or whatever that is. So when God makes man, when He makes something in His image or in His likeness, He makes something that on some level is representative of the God that lies behind it, which is the God of creation. So when we talk about Man and women, men and women, being made in the image and the likeness of God, it it does mean, and you've probably heard this before. It does mean that uh, you know when we talk about our creativity, when we talk about that human beings are very philosophical. We um, we write poetry, we write music, we create. We've written uh, complex written languages. We've invented things. we experience emotion um, with one another. We are relational creatures, right? Um, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are relational creatures. It's one of the reasons that you know solitary confinement is is serious punishment for people. I mean, in war they use that with POWs. Uh, when I worked as a jailer, I've told people that I always found it interesting that we had uh, you know solitary confinement we had a cell where we could throw people in isolation when they weren't behaving leave them in there for three or four days with nothing to look at but four walls and no one to talk to but themselves they come out a whole different person i mean they they start to behave they don't want to go back in there by themselves um it's for for the normal human being it is torment to be isolated from all other human contact um uh, we know that with children, you know, one of the things that they that we've discovered is you know, uh, children in third world countries in orphanages who are put in these cribs and left by themselves for hours on end, days on end, without any human contact, they grow up with all kinds of psychological problems, right? Simply because they were not able to interact with other human beings. So being made in the image of God means all of those things that we are relational creatures. We are creative. But it also means that our physical bodies, in some sense, are reflective of the God who made us. Um, and I think that has to do with our abilities. Uh, you look at you know, the most um, amazing animals, the most amazing animals that are out there, and the things that they can do physically still do not compare to what human beings are capable of doing physically. Um, you know, uh, one illustration I always think of is um, if you're familiar with baseball, maybe you're familiar with the name Kirby Puckett. Anybody know who Kirby Puckett is? One of one of the great baseball players of all times had to retire in like the uh, the, the mid '90s um, because his vision started going, um, and so obviously he started not hitting the ball well. Um, but in an interview, he said to the interviewer one time. He said, you know, I, I, they asked him, when did you realize that something wasn't right? And he said, I knew something wasn't right when I could no longer see the stitching on the ball as it came across the plate. <laughs> that ball is moving at 95 miles an hour. And you talk about keeping your eye on the ball. He could, he could see the stitching as it came across the plate. Physically speaking, human beings are amazing in terms of our mind. I mean, that's a part of our physical makeup, right? Our brain and what we've been able to create. Human beings can't fly naturally, but yet we could put a person on the moon, right? Um, So as humans, right, God, in compared to humans, right, God is far beyond us. Human beings, in compared to every other living creature on the planet, we are far beyond them. We are far beyond the most intelligent animals, gorillas, monkeys, dolphins. Yeah, they're pretty smart for being animals, but monkeys, as smart as they are after all of these years, have never even invented something as simple as a shovel to dig holes with, right? They still just use their hand to dig holes. I mean, we have invented amazing things. So all of that is what it means to be made in the image and the likeness of God. And so I think that's important, first of all. Um, we are the pinnacle of, of, of God's um, you know, creation. Um, um, we are uh, so much so places like Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is such a great psalm to help us understand our place. And this is where I'm getting at is what is our place in the universe? Uh, what is our place in this world? And in Psalm 8, verse 3, David writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So David says, I look at the amazingness of this creation and why do you care so much for us? He is, he's just amazed by that. But then he says in verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, <clears throat> the heavenly beings, does anybody have the New American Standard? Mm-hmm. What does the New American Standard say? God. God. You have made him a little lower than God. I think the NASB has a better translation. How I think that... that? What's that?
1: I do have the NSAV. Yeah,
0: New American it Standard.
1: says
0: angels. It says angels? Okay. So, the Hebrew word, and you, some of you might recognize it, the Hebrew word is the word Elohim. Right? Any of you ever heard that word? Yeah, that's God. Right? right, that's God. Right, it's the, it's the word Elohim. The Hebrew actually says, you have made him a little lower than Elohim and crowned him with glory and honor. The trouble is the translators are trying to figure out do we translate this as God, or how do we how do we translate this? I mean, is it supposed to be God? Is it talking about just heavenly beings? Is it talking about gods? Uh, and so, you, so our English translators are taking different approaches to this, not really sure how it should be understood. Um, I think it should be understood as the the New American Standard understands it. It's God, because if you say you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That translation would argue that there is God, the angels, and then us. But I don't think that's true, because angels aren't made in the image of God. God didn't say, let's make angels in our likeness and in our image. Uh, as far as we can tell, angels were made in the same way that the animals on earth and the, the birds in the heaven were made. God, at some point in eternity past, we don't know when, God just creates these angelous beings to serve Him and to worship Him just creates them. But when he creates humans, he creates the planet and the universe and the stars and he sets the stage and then creates man. And he says, let us make man in our likeness And I think that hour is a Trinitarian hour. I do believe that there's debate on that. Some people might some people people call it a royal we um, meaning God is the king and uh, kings. We're not around kings very very often anymore. But uh, particularly in the medieval days, kings oftentimes will use the phrase we. We command. We request, right? The king's talking about himself. So what is this we, right? It's a royal we. So some think that that might might be what it is. But nonetheless, I think what David is saying is you have made us a little lower than God, right? There's God and then there's man and then there's everything else, right? Um, I don't know if it's angels and then. The created order after that, or maybe they're equal, I have no idea. Uh, but we are made a little lower than God because God makes us in His likeness and in His image. That you say
1: that when you look at the sentence that you just told us, uh, you have made Him a little lower than God, so you, if, if you is the pronoun for God, mm-hmm. God, yet you, God, have made Him a little lower than God. Mm-hmm. It, sounds
0: awkward. it does sound a little awkward. Yeah. And that may, that's probably part of why the English translators will sometimes say angels or heavenly beings. Um, because you're right. The sentence is you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Um, but I do think I would take this to be he's talking about God and not heavenly beings. Um, and uh, so we are made in the image of God. Um, we, we So, here's what's interesting is that, and, and this is why I reference that Numbers 33 verse, right? Um, it's the same word that's used for actual statues, right? So, when God creates man, part of what he is doing is he is putting his stamp of authority upon creation. Because... Statues are used in the ancient world, and even today, to remind people of what they can't see, right? If it's a statue of a god, it reminds you of, oh, this is the god I worship, right? It reminds me of the god that I can't see. But it's they are also used to remind people of, say, the king who rules over them. In the ancient world, there was a, a, a well-known practice that when a king would take over another country or a city or a territory. They would oftentimes erect statues of themselves in the center of town, right? So that every time someone drove by that statue, they were reminded, he rules over us, right? That's the king. Dictators still do that today. I mean, one of the famous scenes from the Gulf War was them pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein, right? It was right in the middle of Baghdad. Um, So God creates everything, And then he says using the same word, let us make let us make an image of ourself to place upon the earth so that when we look around at each other, we remind each other of the God who created us. We serve as reminders of the God that we cannot see, the God who's far beyond us. This is part of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. All of creation bears testimony to the existence of God. Right? So, atheists who believe there is no God, you know, the day of judgment, you know, how do they respond to, why didn't you believe that I existed? Well, there was no evidence of you. Right? It's like the person driving from town to town seeing a statue of the same king in every place and then being brought before the king and saying, well, I didn't know you really existed. Well, what do you think all those statues were for? We were made as the images of God upon earth to remind ourselves that there is a God who created us. We are the product of an intelligent designer. So we are created in the image of God, and in the garden we were perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous, perfectly upright. And then, of course, Adam and Eve transgressed the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they do that, they die, right? They don't die physically and instantly. They do die physically. They begin to age, and they eventually die. But they immediately die spiritually, And we get that from Romans chapter 5, right? If you're familiar with your Bibles, uh, that is clearly told to us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Right? So, death enters into the world through one man. And this is important as well. Sin came into the world through one man man Adam is the federal representative of all of humanity and that's an important that's an important term Adam is our federal and legal representative which means that um, you know we are we, we all in, we are all imputed with Adam's guilt first of all we are credited with Adam's guilt we're born with a sin nature because we all come from Adam but when some, when people say, "Well, that doesn't seem fair," you know, why do we have to reap the consequences of what what Adam did? Well, because like like scientists, you know, God God doesn't have to put every single human being in the garden and face them with the same test to know what they're going to do. He didn't do it, right? What's that? <laughs> he didn't do that. He didn't do that, but he doesn't need to uh, because Adam is the representative. Um, it's, uh, in other words, I'll give you an example. If, uh, if, if, if you were to find uh, a new creature, kind of like we found a new creature one time, right? That ring-tailed cat that we found at the Kelly Place. Anyone of you ever seen a ring-tailed cat in Texas? We actually found one, caught one. Um, I didn't catch it. They caught it, but you know, we got to see it. Never seen this thing before. And this was before the days of the Internet. This was like early 90s, right? Like, what is this thing? Um, Never seen one before. What does it eat? Right? You start giving it things. Some things, don't want that. Other things, ooh, that's good. Right? As soon as it eats the one thing and says that's good, we immediately assume, and I think rightly so, that these things like this. Right? And if I came across 10 of them, I bet they would all eat the same thing. Right? You don't have to do it to each one to know God doesn't have to put every human being in the garden to know what every human being would do. Here is a human. He is the representative for all of humanity. And we also understand that as a government, right? I think that
1: in the, what you're saying is true in the fact that we all die. Yes. When he died, we all died.
0: Mm-hmm. So we bear that mark. We bear that mark. That's right. God treats us based on Adam's behavior. Right? We reap the consequences of what Adam did because he is our representative. Um, and you see that, and, and Paul actually talks about that in the rest of uh, Romans chapter 5. If you look at uh, beginning in verse 18, Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right, talking about Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. We're talking about Christ. One act of righteousness. His death on the cross. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Talking about Christ. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign um, in life. Uh, we should have started at Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, Adam, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So from verse 15 to verse 20, Paul is laying out this this, uh, paradigm, so to speak, this comparison, um, this, this contrasting between Adam and Jesus. And he says, just as sin came into the world through Adam sin and death and condemnation comes into the world through Adam so also in that same way life and righteousness and justification come to believers through Christ so what he's saying is the same way in which it happens with Adam is the same way that it happens with Christ how are we made righteous by the righteousness of Christ it's credited to us right it is imputed to us so that when we put faith in Christ, we are simply credited with Christ's righteousness. We're not infused with His righteousness, and this is a different conversation, uh, but we are given the credit. Um, it, is, it, it is the same as though um, if uh, Bobby, the nice guy that he is, decided uh, one day, out of the kindness of his heart, go down to my bank and pay off my mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me my account. Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who, uh, whose credit score is going to go up because he did that? Mine, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to get the credit for what he did. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything for it. I didn't do anything to earn it. Right? I wasn't deserving of it, but I get the credit for what he did. That's how justification works. That's how the righteousness of Christ comes to us. Christ does the work and we simply get the credit for what he did. It is imputed to us. It's credited to us. So people who think that the imputation of Adam's guilt or the imputation of Adam's sin seems unfair, right? Right? would have to then be okay with saying that the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us is unfair. If we reject one, we have to reject the other. Right? Um, we are credited with Adam's guilt because he's our federal representative. Christ is our representative as well. So what I want to get at here is that when we talk about how is it that sin comes down to all of us, we are credited with Adam's guilt. We, the day that we're born, we are born guilty because Adam is our representative. Christ is the second Adam. Paul will talk about that in Second Corinthians toward the end of the book, chapter 15. Christ comes as the second Adam to create a new humanity so that those who, um, whom he represents are given life and justification and redemption, Right? So Adam sins, and sin comes into the world. And, and it's not long before we see the effects of it, right, in uh, chapter 4. What happens in chapter 4 of Genesis? Cain kills Abel. I mean, that there's the effect of sin. Um, and what I wanted to point out, and again, I do think this is important. I mentioned this recently in a sermon, I believe, that, that, that the devil had to get to Adam because Adam's the representative. Right They're both made in the image of God, but it's important to remember how they were made. God forms Adam and breathes into him the breath of the breath of life, right And then Eve is formed from the rib of the man um, and and we don't see that God breathes into her the breath of life. It's not that she doesn't have it, but she's made from him. so that divine spark is passed down. Right, The image and the likeness of God is passed down because she's made from, from him. But he is the representative of even Eve. He is her representative. He is the representative of all of humanity. The devil needed to get to him. right? And he simply used the woman to do it. Um, and so sin comes into the world and we see the effects of it. But about a thousand years later, if you look at Genesis chapter 6, so from Adam to Noah is about a thousand years. And before the flood, God says this in verse 5, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? What's that? Right. Listen to the wording, Right? that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, every intention, right? This is what sin does to man. Now, man is still made in the image of God, right? We know that because, for example, uh, we just talked about this in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that we've been walking through, Paul talks about the fact that um, man, man is the glory and the image of God, right? He is, he uses present tense. Man is the image of God. Man is still created in the image of God. Um, James uses this as the reason for why we need to be careful about what we say about our fellow man. Look at uh, James chapter 3. James chapter 3 he's talking about our tongue and how we need to uh, keep a hold of it and, and tame it and then he says in verse 9 with it with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God that's the same word by the way I mean this is the this is the Greek word which is um, um, ham, ham, Hamoyo hamoyoos, ham, hamoy, hamoyos, Hamoyo 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 us. Yes. So that, that is the Greek word for likeness. And in the Greek Septuagint, that would be the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 5. Right? It's the same word here. Um, and, and also in, in, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, Man is made in the glory and the image. That, that Greek word is the word eikon, and it is the same Greek word that we find in the Septuagint of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. So the point is that we are still made in the image of God, right? The fall doesn't destroy that, but we're a shattered image. We're, we're a damaged image, right? So we're like, we're like the statue now that is all corroded and it's got pieces missing, right? The nose is gone, right? Maybe the arm fell off, right? We're a, we're a damaged, and we're still the image of God, but we have been damaged by sin, and the extent to which we have been damaged is that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually, right? Human, Adam and Eve had the ability to always do what was right. Now, human beings are incapable <laughs> of doing what is right. Incapable because it says every intention. Now, we sometimes read that and the argument is, okay, look. Obviously that doesn't mean what it means because not everybody in the world are a bunch of Adolf Hitlers that are running around, we're not right. We're not as bad as we can possibly be. We're not like out there just killing on each other, right? I mean, we we still, you know, unbelievers still do nice things, right? They do, but even their good actions are sinful in the eyes of God. What's that? That's right. Their motives are incorrect. Even their sinful action. And that is because Romans 14, this is an important verse to know. Romans 14, verse 23, but whoever uh, doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not from faith. That second sentence, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Right? Whatever does not proceed from faith, any words, any thoughts, any actions, if they are not done from a heart of faith in God, it's sin. It is sin. This is why, again, for example, in Isaiah 63, another important verse.
1: For all makes a in that yeah.
0: That's right, that's right. And and he he actually gets that from Augustine. Um, Augustine talked about that there are four stages of uh, humanity um, as we go through redemptive history. And prior to the fall, man was able to not sin. Right? After the fall, man is not able to not sin. Man is not able to not sin. Um, After conversion, when we get saved, once again... We are able to not sin, kind of like pre-fall, we are able to not sin. And then on the new earth and the new creation, listen to this, we will not be able to sin. Not be able to sin. And Augustine talked about those are the four stages of humanity, right? And so that's what Christ as the second Adam reverses the curse. In the garden, we were able to not sin. Because of Christ, once again, we are able to not sin. It's difficult because, unlike Adam, we have a sin nature we're dealing with. But then again, not having a sin nature didn't really help him out, right? (laughs) He did it anyway, right? But we are able to not sin. We are able to resist. But when we get to the new creation, we will not be able to sin. Complete reversal, right? Complete reversal. Um, But this is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 64... Isaiah 64 verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I think it's either the New King James or the NASB has I think a better translation. Uh, what does NASB say? Filthy
1: rags.
0: Filthy rags, right? All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Yes, the heart is desperately wicked. Because we have a sin nature. Even when we do good things, when the unbeliever helps the little old lady across the street with her groceries, right, his good deeds are tainted with sin. You know, it's like it's like the little kid who comes from outside with, with muddy hands, right? And he and comes in and says, Mommy, let me help you wipe the table, right? What are you gonna yell? Right? Oh, don't oh, stop! Don't touch anything. Yes. Because any good deeds. anything you touch is gonna be tainted with mud, right? Anything the unbeliever touches and does as a good deed, guess what? Is tainted with sin. God doesn't want it.
1: Good tainted with sin. Right, right. Even affection tainted with
0: sin. And 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 that is because, as Bobby said, motives. Because when the unbeliever does something good, if he's not doing it from a heart of faith, because he doesn't believe in Jesus, if he's not doing it from a heart of faith, then he's not doing it for the glory of God, right? And anything that we don't do, I mean, isn't that what Paul commands us in First in, uh, Corinthians 10.31? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Because we exist for God's glory. So, anything that we don't do for the glory of God is a sin. So, if he's not doing it for the glory of God, then the question is, why is he doing a good deed? Well, we can think of lots of reasons, but here's a few. One, he's either doing it because he wants to look good to people who are watching Right, I want to look good to my neighbor. I want to, I want to impress my girlfriend who's waiting in the car as I helped this little lady cross the street. Right, so that's that's a sinful, selfish reason. Maybe figures he's going to get a little money. Maybe, right? Maybe he thinks she's going to tip him. Right, or maybe he's just trying to boost his own self esteem. He wants to be able to go home and sleep well at night and think I'm a I'm a great guy. You know, I I help people. Or you know, maybe you've got the neighbor that's that's always loaning you stuff. He's an unbeliever. But why? Well, maybe because he's thinking, well, now you owe me. Right? Every time I loan you something, you owe me. There's going to come a day when I'm going to want to cash in on all of the nice things that I've done for you. Right? Um, Unbelievers, when they do good, it's always... So, this is what Genesis 6 is talking about. Every intention of the thought is only evil continuously. Right? Right? That is what sin has done to human beings. And we are born that way. Um, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. David writes in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, as far as we know, Jesse did not conceive of David in sin. Right? David was not born from some sort of adulterous relationship or whatever the case may be so why does David say this because David understands the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of total corruption however you want to word it um, I know R.C. Sproul has said he doesn't really like that phrase the doctrine of total depravity because it makes it sound like we're as bad as we could possibly be um, he likes total corruption because our entire nature has been corrupted by sin Right? Total corruption. He like to. uh, <laughs> tea
1: still there. there. you go.
0: Um, but even David understood, I was born a sinner. Right? I was born in sin. Um, we don't, contrary to what the world is saying, or even a lot of churches, right, it's not we're born innocent. We're born a blank slate and we're corrupted by culture. No, we are born... With a sin nature. We are born with a bent towards sin, right? So no matter how cute little Johnny looks, inside that diaper there's a little forked tail, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, Sandra says, and he got it from his daddy. That's right, all the way back to the original daddy, right? Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: of course, I guess we could say because he listened to mama, right? <laughs> um, 58. Psalm 58. Right. Psalm
1: 58, verse 3. Sometimes
0: your is right. Says, the wicked are estranged from the womb and they go astray from birth speaking lies. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Right, So, we are born with a sin nature. We are born with this natural desire to sin and to rebel against God. Um, and especially, we get to the New Testament. Skip over, skip way down to the New Testament now. We talk about what effects did sin have on human beings. Well, most of us are familiar with Romans chapter 3. Paul describing both Jews and Greeks, he says in verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There's no such thing as a God seeker. No one seeks for God. No one understands. Understands what? He's not talking about math or algebra or geography or world history. No one understands the things of God. Um, it's not possible. He then says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? Among unbelievers, they simply do not fear God. They don't care what God wants. They don't care what God desires for their life. They have no fear of Him. They live as if there is no God, um, living in open rebellion um, against Him. Um, flip over to uh, Romans 8. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Right? So, prior to the fall, able to not sin. After the fall, not able to not sin. Right? That's where unbelievers are in that category. Not able to not sin. Yeah, Bobby.
1: When you were quoting Romans 3.23, just before that, and it's clear because it says there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks.
0: Right. For all have sinned. For all have sinned. So,
1: yeah, some people like, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, the Jews somehow. Right. When really, there's no difference.
0: Right. For all. For all. They are all under the condemnation. And that's because... Right, They couldn't keep the law. Um, and of course, they were never designed. Hebrews 10 says the law was never designed to bring about salvation. If the law could save people, then Jesus never would have came in the first place. Right, um, But the law couldn't save people. It's not possible. The unbelieving mind is hostile to God. Hostile against God. Does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's amazing, right? And what's so amazing about these sort of statements is, is I like to throw this out as a mind-boggler, is that I ask people, let me ask you this. When an unbeliever puts their faith in the gospel, they will hear the gospel and they believe it, is that pleasing to God? And it's not a trick question. Is that pleasing to God? Yes, yes right? But yet, Scripture says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? So it begs the question, well, then how do people get saved? We'll get to that in a few weeks. That one's coming. That one's coming. Right? But this is important. It's important to know that in and of themselves, what these passages tell us is that in and of themselves, unbelievers are not capable of... Of believing the gospel, of embracing it, of putting faith in Christ because that would be pleasing to God. And yet this passage says that the unbelievers cannot please God. And this is where, you know, I I become somewhat dogmatic and I'm sort of a stickler here, is that words have meaning. And I believe in the, inerrant, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And so we have to take these words at face value. If the Bible says that unbelievers cannot submit to God's law, and how do we define a law of God? How would you define that? What is a law of God? Huh? Do you
1: just mean like the ten words?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, how would you describe what? Like, we know that the Ten Commandments. God the, whatever, what's that? Whatever God, whatever God tells us to do, right? Whatever God, if God tells you to do something, that's a law, right? It's a law. You know, the first commandment that Jesus gave when he started his ministry—the very first commandment—was repent and believe. That is a law of God. Repent and believe. Unbelievers are commanded to repent and believe. Yet, we're told here that the unbeliever does not submit to God's law. He will not repent and believe. Yet, somehow, we're all saved, right? Most of us in this room. Um, yes? I
1: was going to say, if it was another way, like what you were saying a little bit earlier, right. if it was that way, then the scripture says, let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no, then no longer be correct. Right. Because it could mean, you know... I mean, there's only, there's one way to be saved.
0: Right. Right. There's only.
1: Even Moses said, salvation is of the Lord. Right. So, that's pretty clear, but if it, if it was like, well, you could do some things good, but over here most of the time it's sin, it's, well, then that that changes that whole idea. You yeah. You yes, and you know, is no. Right. And that would change that scenario right there. It's like, well, yeah, no, this was good over here, but that wasn't. It would completely convolute the whole idea of salvation. Yes. If that were so
0: if I this, we, all fall short. we all fall short. That's right. We all fall short. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, which is Paul's way of talking about the unbeliever, uh, the person in, in his natural state, the state in which he is born is what he means by that, the, the state in which you naturally come into the world. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God For they are folly to him. They're foolishness to him. Don't make any sense. And he is not able, oh, there he is. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Is not the gospel the things of God? Right? The gospel is the things of God. And yet, Paul tells us that the unbelieving mind is not able to understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, the believer, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so he draws that comparison that unbelievers are incapable of understanding the things of God. Partly, for this reason, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse three. Scripture says, and even if our gospel is veiled, (coughs) hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Talking about unbelievers, right? In their case, that is unbelievers, the God of this world, notice the small g, he's talking about the devil, right? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers are being actively blinded by the devil. So first of all, we're told, what do we have so far? Number one, every intent, every, every, every intent of the human heart is continually evil. We're told that unbelievers are born sinful, uh, per Psalm 51 and Psalm uh, 58. Uh, we're told that, uh, that unbelievers do not understand the things of God. They don't fear God. Uh, They don't seek after God. And now we're told here that the devil actively blinds the minds of unbelievers so they are incapable of even seeing uh, the gospel. But then it gets worse. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So, so far unbelievers are Blind to the gospel. They are incapable of understanding the gospel. They are incapable, according to Romans chapter 8, of submitting to the law of God. And then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, And you were, notice past tense, because he's writing to Christians. So he says, this is what you were like before you got saved. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, So, again, notice the language. He says it twice. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, sometimes people will say, well, yes, but we can't take Paul literally because he goes on to say in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So, which is it? Are we dead or are we walking? Well, both. We are the living dead. Right? Uh, So, all those zombie movies... Right? That's actually true. Zombies exist. All unbelievers are, in a sense, zombies. They are the walking dead. They, they walk, they live, they do things, right? They have jobs, they drive to work, but they are spiritually dead inside. And there's a cure. Yeah, there is a cure. That's right. And it doesn't have to do with using a hatchet either. I'm sorry. So, if they're the ones that are dead and their are right. why do they? Why does it say that believers are the stench of death to the unbeliever? Because Romans um, eight, right? Romans eight seven. The unbelieving mind is hostile to God. Mm-hmm. When you become saved, you become a representative of God in this world. You are a representative of Christ, and they are hostile. So,
1: it's that skewed view you were talking about earlier. It's yeah, kind of like it's it's just a positional.
0: Right. Well, and I think it
1: reminds them of their coming
0: death. Right. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. You know the
0: yeah. reality of their situation. Yeah. Right. Just so you know, you're gonna die. Yeah, believers. Forever, and then you're gonna die. If 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 human beings, in and of themselves, being made in the image of God, are a visible reminder to the God of this world, Christians are even more a reminder mm-hmm. of the God of this world, right? Um, because um, You know, unbelievers, just by their existence, say, hey, there must be some intelligent being. But believers, by their existence, say, and yes, it is the God of the Bible, and this is what he expects of us. This is what he demands of the world, and that grates on the unbelieving mind. Because remember, the unbeliever is hostile to the things of God. They don't want to hear what God requires of them. Yes, Jack? Okay, thanks. <laughs> so unbelievers unbelievers are um dead in their trespasses and sins. Um and so again, this is this is where human beings are. Um and this is important because I was um I've been listening to uh, um an audio book by A. W. Tozer, um, and he uh and he 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 said something that I'm actually kind of amazed that A.W. Tozer said this, but I like the quote. He said, if we do not believe we are as evil as we truly are, then we cannot believe that God is as good as he truly is. Right? And he's right in more ways than one, I think. Um, in more ways than one because A.W. Tozer obviously is not reformed, although I still, I, I love reading A.W. Tozer. In the area of sanctification, sanctification, He's great to read. Um, And, uh, you know, because when you think about it, you know, there's two prevailing views out there when it comes to salvation and and humanity. You know, one is that unbelievers are like they're dying in their bed. They're wheezing. Right. Um, And and God sets uh, the, the medicine bottle of the gospel on everybody's nightstand and says, if you'll just take it, you know, you can be saved. If you'll reach out and take it on your own, you can be saved. The other view is that unbelievers are all out there and they are uh, they're dead in their sins. They are shaking their fist at God and they're saying, stay out of my life, right? Leave me alone. Let me live the way I want to live. And they're literally attempting to spit in the face of God and God says, despite your behavior, I'm going to save you anyways, Right? Which one requires a a a greater goodness on the part of God, mm-hmm. right? If we're not as evil as we think we are, then God cannot be as good as we think He is, right? You had your hand up, Bobby. I was just going to say that
1: one phrase you hear a lot. You know, it's just it's one, it's a small little phrase, but when you think about it, it's so funny. It says, "Believe in yourself." Right. <laughs> and it's so I mean that is just that is so like
0: I mean I don't know that's probably one of Satan's
1: little things yeah.
0: in his, his book or whatever yeah believe in yourself you'll yeah. fine you know yeah. it's such a lie right right yeah and so uh, so so, yeah it, it, it is a lie I mean believe in yourself you know what is there to believe in ourself you know believe that you're sinful um, yeah. if we are not as evil as as we think we are, then God is not as good as we think he is. Um, and, and, I, and, and yeah, I thought oh, that was a great quote by A.W. Tozer. I need to remember that one. Um, and I, I think he's absolutely right. And that's, and that's why this doctrine is important, right? Because how we understand mankind lays the groundwork for how we understand the rest of Scripture, Um, All of God's deliverance in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross. How we understand where we are radically impacts how we understand who God is and what God has done for us. And this is going to make a huge difference when we begin to talk about actual salvation and regeneration and how that comes uh, to be. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And that would be an a, a, uh, Arminian or a semi-Pelagian view of salvation. And those phrases come from, in the 3rd in the century, Augustine and Pelagius, two theologians that debated um, how salvation works. Augustine held to a complete sovereignty of God and salvation. Pelagius held to the complete opposite that it's all us. God tells us what we need to do, and he believed that we have to work at keeping God's laws to save ourselves. Right, uh, Then you get about uh, you know, two, um, no, more than, more than that, a thousand years later, 1,200 years later, um, you have a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius who says, well, that's not quite right. God does part of what, he does most of what we need, but we have to do the final step. Right, God throws the life raft out to us, but we have to climb into it, and then God pulls us to safety. So uh, theologians refer to that as semi uh, Pelagianism and um, um, our, Jacob Arminius basically debated, though not personally, John Calvin. But the ideas of Calvin and Arminius are complete opposites. Yes. Isn't that sub-Pelagian Arminian view of legalism? Um, at root, at root, it is. At root, it is. Most Arminians don't realize that, though. Um, you know, in other words, I'm not going to say that Arminian Christians are not believers. They are. Um, I always like, um, you know, someone once asked uh, John Gerstner uh, that question. And anyone know who John Gerstner is? Probably not before your time. But someone asked John Gerstner if, uh, if Arminians were saved, and uh, he had a very raspy kind of voice. And he said, Yes, but only by the skin of their teeth. <laughs> Um, <laughs> definitely nothing he did. Right, right. So, so they are, uh, you know, they are they are believers, fellow believers in Christ. Uh, but we'll talk more about that as we go on. Uh, because, as I said, I've already been talking for about an hour now. Um, so, I just wanted to deal with this doctrine uh, the doctrine of man, um, you know, what it means to be made. Because, how we understand not just our sinful nature, but I started with being made in the likeness because when we talk about why would God go through all that He went, why would Christ go through all that He went through to redeem people who are hostile to Him because at the very beginning, human beings are the prized creation of God. Human beings are the crown jewel in God's crown. We are the pinnacle of his creation. He's not going to just let that go. Right? So all of redemptive history from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 21 what God is doing in all of redemptive history is he is undoing what man has ruined. Right? He, is, he is reversing the curse and making it even better because Adam was able to not sin but on the new earth we will not be able to sin. Right. The second Adam will do what the first Adam was not able to accomplish. What's that? Sin will not exist. Sin will not exist. It will not even exist. There will be no tempter. (laughs) (laughs) No tempter, no possibility of sinning or ruining anything, but all of eternity (laughs) worshiping with God. Yes.
1: Mm. It's kind of like, you know, we're all saying, be somebody, we want to see ourselves in a good light. Right. But it, and it's hard to look at it that way, but I think, just telling our oldest couple of weeks ago, which, you know, that I think that's one of the big problems with society is that, you know, they
0: don't want to, they don't see, they want to see themselves as this great person and it's right. the a reality that. Right. You times a day and, yeah. You know, you know, we have, we make, we do something, and sometimes it has a higher graphical reason, like you said, make ourselves look good, and then, and then the
1: other side, we want to do something for Christ, but that outweighs the other. We, we do all sorts of dumb things. Right. You know, but,
0: right. right. Know, yeah. One of the, one of the, one of the biggest lies that was played on humanity is, uh, you know, the, the philosophical theory of um, Rene Descartes. He was a uh, Renaissance philosopher who uh, basically said that all human beings were born as a tabula rasa, is what he said, a blank slate, right? And and, and the world has bought into that. Mm-hmm. Human beings are, are basically good. We're born a blank slate. And uh, that is the complete, that is a lie of the devil that has been peddled successfully to the world, right? And uh, we're not a blank slate. Um, we are not basically good. We are basically evil. Um, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, why don't we close in a in a word of prayer and uh and then we can eat some more dessert. Our gracious God, heavenly Father, Lord, um we do thank you. We praise you for all that you have done for us, Lord. Despite our sinfulness, despite our wickedness, despite our inability to do anything um to save ourselves or to do anything anything that would be pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and goodness in making a way, providing a way of salvation and eternal life for us so that we might be brought, even in this world, to a place where we are able to not sin once again. And so long as we, as Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And we pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would help us to do that Uh, Help us to walk by the Spirit, to lean on the Holy Spirit, to derive our strength and guidance from Him. And uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen our faith and our resolve against sin and temptation. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.